Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello and welcome to part two of Kristen Smart's case. Make sure that you listen to part one before this part so you'll have all the information involved in this case because there's a lot to go over. I will have that linked in the show notes or the description box so that you can quickly and easily find it. As a quick refresher, in part one, we talked about Kristen's disappearance and the aftermath involving Paul Flores, who was the last person seen with Kristen. From the time Kristen went missing in 1996 up until about 2021, Paul was just out freely living his life while Kristen's parents fought hurdle after hurdle to get justice for their daughter. One particular property, which was Paul's mother's home, was highly suspicious and most people believed that Kristen's body was buried in the backyard. For years, this property was only lightly searched and the ground was never dug up and eventually Kristen's case went cold. In 2019, Chris Lambert started his podcast, Your Own Backyard, and a new surge of attention was gained for Kristen's case. A new sheriff has taken over the San Luis Obispo Police Department, and his fresh outlook on her case got the ball rolling again after two decades without answers for Kristen's loved ones. In January of 2020, Kristen's family put out the following statement, quote, Congratulations to Chris Lambert for his outstanding podcast, Your Own Backyard. His seventh episode is now live and is a must-listen. Thanks to Chris and all the supporters who have made such an amazing difference. Your Own Backyard has been instrumental in renewing interest in Kristen's investigation and generating many new leads. We now know that the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office has issued 18 search warrants of nine locations, conducted 91 new interviews, filed 364 supplemental reports, and obtained 140 new items of evidence. Later today, the Sheriff's Department will confirm that now they have two vehicles in their possession. Keep the faith and know that you are all making a difference, end quote. After that, another search warrant was served for four more locations connected to Paul Flores. Two of the locations were in San Luis Obispo County, one was in Washington State, and one was in Los Angeles. Finally, on April 13, 2021, Paul and his father Ruben were arrested. At a press conference, Sheriff Ian Parkinson confirmed, quote, I'm here this afternoon to announce the arrest of Paul Flores for the murder of Kristen Smart and the arrest of his father Ruben Flores as an accessory to the murder, end quote. In today's episode, we will go over all of the details of the court proceedings and the final conviction and the updates that have happened since. Before Paul's arrest in April of 2021, they'd had different court dates where basically he'd been questioned as they tried him for a wrongful death lawsuit. As a reminder, when he was subpoenaed in 1997, he refused to answer any of the questions, pleading the fifth a total of 27 times, making the entire courtroom and myself insane. After that, there was some talk between Paul's attorney and the Smarts family attorney about getting Paul a plea deal. In 1997, Paul was offered a plea deal to lead police to Kristen's body in exchange for a manslaughter charge with a six-year sentence. Paul's defense team turned that deal down. Over the following years, Paul's lawyer would try to get him lighter and lighter and lighter sentencing in different plea deals. From what I understand, in the last plea deal his lawyer came up with, Paul would basically lead the police to Kristen's body in exchange for being charged with an infraction, which is an insult to the Smart family, in my opinion. An infraction is defined as a violation of an administrative regulation, ordinance, municipal code, or a state or traffic rule. Infractions are sometimes referred to as petty offenses. In the Your Own Backyard podcast, Chris Lambert explains that an infraction is like getting a parking ticket. Jaywalking holds a higher charge than an infraction. And they were trying to get him an infraction charge for a potential murder. So Paul was trying to get off with a slap on the wrist for murdering someone. 
pretty interesting that someone would try to negotiate a plea deal stating that they could and would lead police to Kristen's body for the right deal, but then for decades afterwards insist that they have no idea and had nothing to do with her death. It makes my blood boil listening to Paul and his family talk about Kristen as if they have no idea why everyone's so suspicious of them and why they are in hot water. It's disgusting. So these meetings between lawyers and the plea deals that were being negotiated can't be used as evidence in court, which is unfortunate because it makes it pretty clear that Paul knew exactly where Kristen's body was and was open about it, kind of, for all of these years. After Kristen went missing, but before Paul was named as a person of interest, and I'm pretty sure it was before the police did that initial search of Ruben's house, the Smart family and some of their friends went to the neighborhood around Ruben's house and put up missing posters of Kristen. They said absolutely nothing about Paul. They didn't point any fingers. It was literally just a missing poster with Kristen's photo asking for help finding her or any information in her disappearance. Ruben Flores went and tore down every single one of them. One of their neighbors saw him doing this and called the police, but there wasn't really anything they could do because technically he wasn't breaking any laws. He was just being a jerk. As I mentioned in part one, Kristen's family tried to reason with Paul's parents multiple times. They begged them for their help and cooperation. These pleas fell on deaf ears, and Ruben and Susan Flores were cold-hearted and often cruel to Kristen's family. Eventually, the Smart family reached out to some of the Flores' extended family, asking them for help. Finally, one of the nieces spoke to Denise Smart and told her to stop calling, saying, quote, Please stop calling here. Our grandma is 85 years old. If she found out what Paul did, she would have a heart attack, end quote. This niece then went on to say that if that did happen, it would be the Smart family's fault if their grandma had a heart attack. So it's not that they thought Paul was innocent and wanted to defend him. It's that they didn't want their grandmother to find out what he did. And that's somehow the Smart family's responsibility. In 2005, the Flores family filed a lawsuit against the Smarts for loss of income and severe emotional distress. Unbelievable. They're having severe emotional distress? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to rant. We're only five minutes into the episode. I don't, I don't deserve a rant yet. Here we go. Over the following years, Kristen's case went cold until 2019 when the Your Own Backyard podcast started. As we know, new searches were conducted in 2020, and then finally, on the morning of April 13th, 2021, Paul Flores was arrested for the murder of Kristen Smart, and Ruben Flores was arrested as an accessory to that murder. In an attempt to keep things as easy to understand as possible, I'm going to talk separately about the different locations connected to Paul's arrest, starting with one of the most frustrating aspects of this case, which is the rental property owned by Paul's mother, Susan Flores. As a reminder, at the time that Kristen went missing, Paul's parents, Reuben and Susan, were living separately. Unfortunately, police weren't aware of this living situation at the very beginning of this investigation, so the initial searches were only made at the home of Reuben Flores. The first searches performed two months after Kristen went missing were very minimal. Police didn't bring cadaver dogs or a forensics team, and they didn't search the cars Paul had access to. Again, as a reminder, on that first search, the police removed a police baton that is illegal for people to have and three newspaper clippings talking about Kristen's disappearance that were hidden around the house. Huge weird red flag because at that time, Paul hadn't even been named a person of interest yet. They had just barely started their investigation, but they had these hidden newspaper stories about Kristen. The property that Susan Flores owned was listed as a rental property, but quickly removed from listings right after Kristen's disappearance. In the yard of Susan's home, there was a big concrete slab laid that was a thorn in everyone's side for literally decades. During one of Paul's initial police interviews, when they began asking him more pressing questions about his involvement with Kristen, he abruptly said that he needed to leave to help his mom clean up a cement mess at her home. 
In that same interview, Paul also had a black eye and scratches on his arms that he came up with all kinds of stupid excuses for. Since he wasn't under arrest and had agreed to talk to police on his own will, they couldn't hold him when he started getting snappy and they had to let him leave. A few months passed and Susan listed her home as a rental property once again. Mary and Joe Lassiter moved into the home with their young son. When the Lassiters moved in, they had no idea the Flores family had a connection to a missing persons case. They didn't find out about this until they started getting hate mail that was obviously not meant for their family. In the short time they lived in the Flores rental property, they had some strange interactions with the Flores family. First, there was a metal garbage can on the property that they were told very firmly not to move or touch. One day, Ruben Flores showed up and quickly removed that garbage can, and that same day, Mary Laster found an earring that had what looked like a bloodstain on it. She called the police to report it and hand over the earring, thinking that it might be evidence. And remember, police took that earring as evidence in connection to Kristen's case because that earring matched a necklace that Kristen was wearing in the photo her family used on her missing posters. It looked very similar and could have been part of a set. However, when the police took this earring from the Lassiters, it was then misplaced, never to be seen again. The third strange thing that the Lassiters dealt with at the Flores rental property was that in the freshly laid cement planter outside their bedroom window, they heard what sounded like a watch alarm beeping every morning at 4.20 a.m. It was speculated to be Kristen's watch because at the time of her disappearance, she was a lifeguard in the early mornings before her classes. She would have to be to work by 5 a.m., meaning she usually got up around 4.20. When the Lassiters tried to dig around in the planters to see if they could find the watch, they hit a second layer of concrete below the shallow planters. Eventually, the watch battery died and the beeping stopped. Not long after the Lassiters turned over that earring to the police, the Flores family evicted them from the property. Along with the Lassiters' experiences, neighbors of the Flores property also said that they saw the Flores family doing a lot of different construction to the backyard around the time Kristen went missing. On June 20, 2000, four years after Kristen went missing, the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Office performed a search of the Flores property. They brought a cadaver dog and a geologist to perform ground-penetrating radar. The search warrant stated that they were there to look for A, Kristen's remains, and or B, any evidence related to her disappearance. At that time, they did not dig anywhere in the yard, even though a cadaver dog alerted to the spot where the garbage cans Ruben Flores was being really particular about used to be, and the geologist said that there were abnormalities clearly shown in the yard. The fact that the backyard was not dug up was a big issue point for a lot of people, myself included. On the website digupthyard.com, which is run by Dennis Mahone, I think it's Mahone, Dennis Mahone. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, Dennis has been a huge supporter of the Smart family for a really long time, and he has a timeline and some really important notes and information about the Flores backyard. A few months after that search in June of 2000, Dennis had a conversation with Undersheriff Steve Boltz and flat out asked him why they didn't dig up the yard that day. Undersheriff Boltz said, quote, We took a vote that day whether or not to dig up the yard, Dennis. I voted in favor of it, but it was outvoted, end quote. There is a follow-up to this quote on Dennis's website that says, quote, In fairness, Undersheriff Steve Boltz disputes this account. In an interview with Stacey Finn of the San Francisco Chronicle, Boltz told the reporter that the first warrant did not authorize a dig and that the vote taken that day was whether or not to apply for a second warrant that would allow a dig, end quote. After having that conversation with under Sheriff Boltz, Dennis had a conversation with an FBI agent familiar with Kristen's case who was very angry about that statement. According to Dennis, this FBI agent was upset because the Sheriff's Department had no right to be taking votes whether or not to comply with a search warrant signed by a sitting judge. Another FBI agent named Jack Schaefer is the man who put together the info for this search warrant. He went to the Flores home and interviewed the Flores family and their neighbors and then submitted this warrant to the Sheriff's Department. 
and the sheriff's department submitted that paperwork to get a sitting judge to get permission to search Susan Flores's property. Years later, in 2006, Dennis had an email exchange with Agent Schaefer where he mentioned this meeting with Under Sheriff Bolts and got what he called an enlightening email back. It said, quote, The first warrant authorized a dig. I know this because I provided most of the info for the warrant. I forced a warrant on a skeptical police force. I was told that the officers present did not want to pay to have concrete repaired if the search turned up nothing. That was a lost opportunity. End quote. In March of 2007, another ground-penetrating radar search was done at Susan Flores's property. This was something that I believe was done by someone the Smart family had hired, and the GPR expert found anomalies in the backyard again. The Smart's lawyer sent this information to police, begging them to get a warrant to dig up the freaking yard, but that warrant never came. Something weird happened during this time as well. Susan allowed the GPR expert to dig in the yard, but only in two very specific places, and they weren't allowed to bring cadaver dogs. She wouldn't give them free range to dig where they wanted to or felt they needed to, but she allowed them to dig up very specific spots. Obviously, nothing was in those spots, which is probably why she agreed to let them dig there. I just don't get it. There are so many things that the Flores family does that just confuses me to no end. I don't understand why not just let them dig up the whole freaking yard if you have nothing to hide to get police off your back. Why bother saying they can dig up these two specific spots as if that's going to suddenly clear your name and make you look less suspicious? And to tell them that they're not allowed to bring cadaver dogs. Why not? If there's nothing to hide, dig up the yard, prove that there's nothing there, and there you go. I just feel like that's even more suspicious. I, whatever, moving on. On January 3rd, 2011, a new sheriff was sworn in. Sheriff Ian Parkinson submitted a request to the Board of Supervisors to bring on an extra detective specifically to help with cold cases. Apparently, the court administrator decided that this wasn't an important enough issue and didn't even present it to the board for them to consider. When Kristen's friends and family found out about this, they started showing up at town hall meetings and lobbying for this extra detective to be hired. Finally, in 2016, the sheriff was granted the budget to hire a cold case detective, but even then, the San Luis Obispo Police Department still did not go back and dig up the Flores property. Dennis Mahone had a conversation with Sheriff Parkinson in 2017 and asked him if he could come up with a reason why they haven't dug up this yard, given all the information that they have in Kristen's file and all of the evidence stacking up. Sheriff Parkinson said that he could see the mistakes made in Kristen's case and that he wanted to make things right with the Smart family. We'd love to see it. Sheriff Parkinson also gave a little insight on the first warrant and past investigation of the property. A paragraph from digupthyard.com says, quote, the warrant does not specifically say, go dig up a body. It is more in the spirit of, you are to search anywhere and everywhere where it's reasonable to expect a body to be hidden. Did the officers conducting the search 16 years earlier do that? I don't know, Dennis. I wasn't there. So I don't have those answers. End quote. Fair enough. I will say, I know I was really harsh last episode because of the detective work that was not done, but I do feel like the new sheriff was appointed and he genuinely did take interest in this case and moved it forward clearly because now we have updates and I think that he did an amazing job trying to make up for lost time, which is awesome. And I wish that every detective and sheriff and officer was able to do that. In 2015, a retired detective named Paul Dosti took his cadaver dog Buster to do a little search of his own. He took Buster around the perimeter of the Flores property and Buster alerted to human decomposition in four different areas. Buster is incredible at what he does. In 2014, he was credited with recovering the remains of about 200 people including a World War II pilot whose plane went down in 1944. Buster is the best of the best and has a lot of cases backing up the fact that if he alerts to something, it's not a mistake. 
Detective Dosti begged the San Luis Obispo Police Department just to take a sample of the soil from the property. They didn't have to do any digging, just take a sample of the soil and have it tested in a lab to check for human decomposition. But the police did not go that route and did not even try to do anything with that information. Dennis asked Detective Dosti to clarify how this would work, and he said, quote, We always want to do all the science possible before digging. All we, including the Smart Family Attorney, have asked the sheriff to do is to conduct a ground-penetrating radar survey of the suspected site by scanning through the retaining wall from the neighbor's yard. If what the eyewitness described is accurate, we should see an anomaly in the GPR data, end quote. The eyewitness they are talking about is the neighbors who saw construction and digging happening in the backyard right after Kristen disappeared. Dr. Kent Schneider has volunteered to conduct the GPR survey at no cost with just his expenses paid, airfare, lodging, meals. The other scientific method that is needed to drill holes through the wall and collect soil samples for GCMS analysis to see if human decomposition chemicals are present. We have a concrete contractor who will drill the holes and repair them at no cost, end quote. So all of these options were presented to the San Luis Obispo Police Department and they still didn't accept the help for the free detective work and the free ground penetrating radar and the free digging and fixing of concrete. Why not just do it? I don't get it. I don't get it. So this was all the information I could find on Susan's property. If I understand correctly, they have never gone and dug around in those planters. They have never gone and tested the soil at her property. Ruben Flores's home is a different story, but it seems like there was stuff hidden at Susan's house that could have also been really helpful in the dirt. And I don't know. I looked around as much as I could. So if you happen to know, if you've read an article, if you find an article that talks specifically about Susan's rental property, please let me know in the comments because whenever I search for it, it always just comes up with Ruben's home. So that feels like a little bit of a loose end. As I mentioned earlier, at first police did not know about Susan's rental property. So Ruben Flores's home was the first to be searched in connection to Kristen's disappearance in 1996. For the search of Ruben's home in 1996, police had a warrant for Kristen's clothing, dorm key, or any of Paul's clothing that he was wearing that night. They did not bring a forensics team or cadaver dogs. They didn't search in the yard or go underneath the house where there was a crawl space. They didn't search any of the cars that Paul had access to. The only things they took were that police baton and those three newspaper clippings about Kristen's disappearance that were hidden in Paul's room, Reuben's room, and the kitchen. After that very minimal search, police didn't go back to Reuben's home with a warrant until 2020, which is really unfortunate because the amount of stuff that they found in 2020 that could have been found back in 1997, unbelievable. The 2020 search warrant allowed them to take multiple items from the home, but again, they didn't bring cadaver dogs or do any digging in the yard. Shortly after those items were removed, police got a tip from a witness who saw suspicious activity at Ruben's home. Susan Flores and her boyfriend Mike were seen outside all night arguing. They had pulled a cargo trailer up to the side of the house, and this witness believed that they were removing items from the home. Police showed up with another warrant on March 15, 2021, and this search was the first time the sheriff's office brought cadaver dogs and a ground-penetrating radar to Ruben's property. Paul and Ruben were taken from the property while the search was performed. Reporters and neighbors gathered around the house watching to see what would be removed and what was going on. During this search process, Susan and Mike drove around the block multiple times. Mike's trailer was parked on the property and he was having a conversation with the police saying that they weren't allowed to search it and he asked them if he could remove the trailer from the property. The police, of course, said no and told them to get lost and then later they got a search warrant for that trailer as well. Eventually, Susan and Mike left the property, but then they drove back a while later and were waving at reporters and acting like complete clowns. 
Many witnesses said that it seemed as if they were trying to taunt the police and reporters. During the second day of the search, investigators went under a deck located on the south side of Rubin's house. They took cadaver dogs and ground-penetrating radar. The GPR performed showed an anomaly under the house that was about six feet tall and four feet wide. They removed buckets and buckets of dirt from this area but didn't find Kristen's remains. Investigators believed that they had found the exact spot where Kristen had been buried but were certain that her remains had been recently removed. So this deck is really high off the ground. The space under it is high enough for someone to easily walk under, and the Flores family built a lattice fence around it that connects to the ground. A witness who was Paul's roommate in 2006 said that Paul once confessed to her that he had buried Kristen in Ruben's yard under a gazebo. The Flores property never had a gazebo, but this made investigators wonder if he was actually referring to this lattice fencing. This witness also said that Paul said that police did such a bad job investigating that they were standing right on top of Kristen and didn't even know it. The 2021 GPR shows evidence that this offhanded confession to that roommate was probably true. And that's because of the fact that the ground search shows evidence that there was a body buried there, but that it was most likely moved very recently. Former tenants told Chris Lambert on the Your Own Backyard podcast that Reuben was always adamant that they should stay out of that area under the house no matter what. There was also a plumber that contacted Chris because Reuben hired him to take care of a plumbing problem at the house, and when he told Reuben that he would need to access a pipe underneath the house in the area under the deck, Reuben told him just to forget it and cancel the job. Later, it came up in court that when investigators took Mike's trailer for testing, there was a test done using a Blue Star blood visualizing agent similar to Luminol. An area on the floor of the trailer lit up like crazy during this test. It was argued that it could have been a false positive because of bleach used to clean that area of the trailer, but even that was still significant because the trailer was disgusting and dirty top to bottom, and that was the only spot that had been bleach cleaned. This was the same trailer that witnesses saw Susan and Mike arguing in front of after the 2020 search was done. The trailer was backed in and parked right in front of this lattice fencing under the deck, which has led people, myself included, to believe that this was where Kristen's remains were absolutely buried, but they were moved after that 2020 search when they felt like police were getting too close. Allegedly. After the search was finished, Susan, Mike, and Reuben returned to this house. Reuben went under the deck to see what they'd been doing, and he went to go get a reporter to come and take photos and videos of the damage that police had done by digging under the deck. Like anyone gives a shit about your stupid soil under your deck, dude. Meanwhile, Susan Flores did her very first media interview. She made it very clear that she was mad that police were digging up the yard, she was mad that they took the Volkswagen, and she said, quote, They keep trying to find the answers with us, and they keep failing because the answers aren't here. It's simple. It's simple for me to say because I know the answer's not here. End quote. The phrasing of that seems a little... specific. Did she mean they're not here anymore? Because the evidence was stacking up at this point, and it makes me think that she thought they got away with moving the body allegedly. Seriously, not trying to get in trouble. It's just my opinion. My opinion. Susan also refused to say Kristen's name. She would only say her or somebody when talking about Kristen. She said, quote, we have no responsibility in her disappearance or what happened to that young woman and they're looking for the remains of somebody, end quote. Susan also told this reporter that they had tried to talk to Kristen's family members, but that the smarts wouldn't talk to them, which we all know is an absolute lie, especially because in that 2020 search, they found a bunch of letters from the Smarts and Kristen's missing posters and newspaper clippings. I honestly don't know what made her think that this was the right time to talk to a reporter after 24 years of refusing. It makes me personally think that because the police didn't arrest anyone that day and that they didn't find 
Kristen's remains, that they thought they were somehow in the clear and that there wouldn't be any testing done on the soil. I don't know. Whatever the thought process there was, no amount of complaining about damage to the yard or media interviews was going to stop what was already in motion. Paul Flores and Ruben Flores were arrested on April 13th, 2021. In response to the arrest, Kristen's family put up this message on the Justice for Kristen Facebook page, quote, For over 24 years, we have waited for this bittersweet day. It is impossible to put into words what this day means for our family. We pray it is the first step to bringing home our daughter. While Kristen's loving spirit will always live in our hearts, our life without her hugs, laughs, and smiles is a heartache that never abates. The knowledge that a father and son, despite our desperate pleas for help, could have withheld this horrible secret for nearly 25 years, denying us the chance to lay our daughter to rest, is unrelenting and unforgiving pain. We now put our faith in the justice system and move forward, comforted in the knowledge that Kristen has been held in the hearts of so many and that she has not been forgotten." End quote. So it probably won't be shocking to you that there was a mile-long list of stories about Paul's awful behavior. Once Chris Lambert started digging into the case in your own backyard, I feel like I have mentioned this podcast so many times, this is now a Chris Lambert fan page account. Once that podcast started, stories started pouring in about Paul. A lot of time in true crime cases, people say, I can't believe this person is being accused of this crime. They were so great. It's unbelievable. This was not one of those cases, not by a long shot. As soon as Paul's name started circulating in connection to Kristen's disappearance and death, no one was shocked, and that's terrifying. From the time that Paul was a child, he was bullying and intimidating other kids. People who were on his childhood soccer team said that he was aggressive, angry, and even brought a knife to the soccer field and popped soccer balls and threatened one of his other teammates with that knife. Multiple people told a story of when they were kids in a daycare that Susan Flores ran out of their home about how Paul attacked another kid. If I remember correctly, this was when Paul was in elementary school but close to junior high age. There was a pool party happening at the Flores house, and there was one girl who Paul was trying to get attention from. He would stare at her and follow her around, and she was not okay with it and avoided him as much as she possibly could. During this party, Paul jumped into the pool after her and held her underwater while the other kids screamed and yelled until an adult came and pulled him off of her. Apparently, Susan didn't tell this girl's mom about this incident. The mom found out from other parents who called her and told her what happened. She was, of course, pissed, and when she confronted Susan, Susan basically told this mom that she was being ridiculous and, quote, "'This is how kids play.'" and that this mom was causing the Flores family trouble. We see a pattern here, right? And patterns are important in these things. It's a lot of people saying that Paul is doing something inappropriate and his parents saying that they're being harassed and that they're being put out by other people having issues with their son, as if it's not him causing issues. And that's on enabling. So obviously after that pool party, this mom and other parents pulled their kids out of Susan's daycare right away and never spoke to them again. Many of the kids and parents who were part of this daycare at the time were horrified by this incident and especially since Susan was taking it so lightly. By the time Paul was in middle school, people were really uncomfortable around him. Everyone who talks about Paul describes him as weird and creepy. One of his junior high classmates remembered a Halloween party where they caught Paul hiding in a tree outside of one of their houses, spying on the girls. He would also do those whole call and say nothing but breathe heavily into the phone. Lots of weird and uncomfortable comments and unwanted advances. Again, none of these people were shocked when they found out what Paul was being accused of. When Paul was in ninth grade, he attacked one of his classmates. A male student who was in Paul's grade ended up in the hospital, I believe with a concussion and serious injuries, after Paul beat the crap out of him at school. In high school, it just continued to escalate. 
He would follow girls around and make weird comments and lurk around and stare at them while they were at parties and things like that. By his senior year, people said he was violent and angry all the time to the point where people gave him that Psycho Paul nickname. And let me just say really quick, there's a difference between being someone who is shy and maybe a little uncomfortable and sometimes comes off a little bit odd in high school. There's plenty of kids that are like that who just are shy and nervous around people, but who don't attack them and who don't make people uncomfortable and say disgusting things and spy on them through their windows, okay? So let's, I'm just, let's point out the differences here between someone who's maybe a little bit of a wallflower who feels like they're always on the outside versus someone like Paul who is violent and angry. See where I'm going with this? One of the many stories told about Paul in high school was a time when he attended an after-prom party where he was sitting on the ground near this group of girls who were all probably freaked out about him being there. And he got up to go to the bathroom or something, and when he came back, there was a girl that was sitting in the spot he had been sitting in. Paul told this girl that she needed to move because he was sitting there, and she kind of was like, well, I'm sitting here now. And he accused her of cock-blocking him and, again, was, like, telling her she needed to move. She told him that there were plenty of places to sit, so he needed to just go sit somewhere else. And in response to that, Paul body-slammed this girl so hard that she blacked out. Everyone at the party started yelling. There were a bunch of guys who grabbed him and threw him out of the party and told him not to come back. After that party, Paul saw this girl at school the next week, and he snuck up behind her and he did that irritating thing. I'm sure that we can all think of a moment. Hopefully this doesn't still happen to you as an adult, but where people will come up behind you and, like, jump scare you. But Paul went up behind this girl, grabbed her shoulders, and yelled, body slam, and pretended like he was going to shove her down. And as she stood there panicked, he laughed in her face and walked away. See, it's just things like this. It's just, it's a behavior that we see again and again and again, and it's escalating at a really scary pace. College was the same story, again, over and over. Creeping around at parties, looking in girls' windows, sneaking onto balconies to spy on people. Multiple people talked about how he would always laugh like a maniac when they caught him spying on them. This creepy laugh got brought up a lot. Everyone was uncomfortable around him. Everyone felt unsafe. Again, psycho Paul, creepy Paul, scary Paul. Not good. Four incredibly brave women came forward once Your Own Backyard started and shared their stories about Paul. I highly recommend that you go listen to their full stories on the podcast. I will keep things here as brief as possible because these stories are very upsetting and sometimes graphic, so there is your trigger warning if you decide to look further into these stories. These women are giving pseudonyms in the article I read about their stories, so I will be using those names here as well. Jane was a 15-year-old sophomore when Paul Flores drugged and raped her. Jane and Paul went to school together, and sometimes he would give her rides to and from school, and she said that she thought that Paul seemed a little bit strange, but seemed fine. She thought that maybe he had a little crush on her, so maybe he was just nervous and acting like a dumb teenage boy. But things started to get weirder, including one of her friends saying to her, quote, Oh, hey, you need to be careful of that Paul Flores. I think he's stalking you. He was writing your name like 150 times on a piece of paper, and he kept circling it, end quote. Again, Jane didn't really think anything of this, anything more than just a boy being kind of awkward and goofy. That's probably because most people aren't monsters, so they don't assume, especially at 15 years old, that they need to be afraid of their own classmates. One night, Paul invited Jane to hang out with him and one of his friends. They gave her a drink that we can all assume was drugged because she passed out and was in and out of consciousness as Paul raped her. Paul and his friend dragged her home, and luckily her mom was there. Um, Jane recounted, her parents took Jane to the hospital and a rape kit was performed and her parents went to file a police report against Paul. 
The police basically told this poor family that there was nothing they could do because Paul and his friends said that they had all been drinking and that this was a consensual encounter. Jane begged police to do something because she was blacking out and didn't consent to anything. She was 15, but the police did nothing, and it was her word against his, and he had friends there as witnesses. When approached about Jane's rape claim, an Arroyo Grande Police Department administrator said in an email that their search, quote, revealed no such records exist, therefore there are no responsive documents, end quote. That's because they didn't take Jane's story seriously, so Paul Flores got away with this shit and continued attacking women. I... (laughs) This is what happens when we do not listen to children who say that then an older boy that they go to school with attacked them. I just don't understand how you could look at this girl and tell her that she was being ridiculous and accuse her of lying. I I just don't understand. I don't understand. (sighs) Paul's sophomore year at Cal Poly, he attacked another young woman. Sarah had multiple run-ins with Paul where he acted like a complete ass. He once grabbed her crotch at a Halloween party in front of everyone, and Sarah started yelling at him, and some of the guys at the party started running toward Paul. He ran out of the party, scared for his life. Good. That same year, Sarah was at her friend's birthday party when Paul showed up uninvited and tried to interact with her again. Sarah went into the bathroom, probably to get away from Paul, and he kicked the door down and attacked her. He shoved her violently against a wall and threatened to rape her. Luckily, Sarah was able to fight him off. She kicked him in the groin, good for her, and ran out of the bathroom. There were some really good guys at this party who are not pieces of crap like Paul Flores who jumped him and told him to get the hell out of the party and not to come back. He didn't bother Sarah again after that, but when she saw his mugshot in connection to Kristen's disappearance, she was terrified. Sarah told a reporter for thedailybeast.com, quote, Still to this day, I am afraid to go to the bathroom by myself in public places. She said, admitting that she still asks her husband every time to stand at the entry to the door when she has to go. I have this PTSD fear of someone kicking the door in, end quote. One of Paul's cousins came forward and asked to remain anonymous, and she said that Paul has absolutely no limits. She shared a story about a family camping trip in the early 90s when one of her female cousins playfully grabbed Paul's wallet and asked for money so that they could walk to a nearby store to get slushies. Her interview with thedailybeast.com says, quote, Paul had this look on his face. He threw my cousin to the ground and got on top of her and was putting his hands down her top even after he got his wallet. He had her pinned down and he had his hand down her bathing suit, groping her. A woman nearby screamed at Flores to get off of her and threatened to call the cops. End quote. Another woman came forward who we will call Laura. Laura met Paul in 2002 and they began dating and eventually moved in together with a male roommate. She said that when they were dating, she believed that Paul had been cheating on her. She also heard from many of her friends that Paul would flirt with them and be touchy-feely and inappropriate. Laura said that at first, she couldn't imagine Paul cheating on her or acting like that with her friends because he seemed like a good guy. Over time, the cracks started to show and these stories became more and more believable. Laura said that sometimes during sex, he would get way too aggressive and she would have to tell him to calm down and slow down. She recalled a story that one time they were kind of playing around and wrestling in their room when suddenly Paul got really intense and grabbed a butter knife and pushed it against her face. Laura started yelling and screaming and telling him to stop, and their male roommate ran in and had to pull Paul off of her. Laura stayed with Paul a little while longer until another incident happened where they were arguing and he started yelling at her and slapped her really hard on the arm. That point was enough, and they broke up. After their breakup, Laura started looking into Paul because she was kind of freaked out by this behavior and the stories that people had been telling her. When she found out about his connection to Kristen Smart, she was horrified. She said that the moment she found out still haunts her to this day. Literally dozens of other women have come forward with stories about Paul. 
1997, he worked at an Outback Steakhouse and had multiple scary run-ins with women at the restaurant. He was constantly leering at these women and acting like a total creep again, making inappropriate comments, making unwanted advances, just the same stuff over and over. Some of the Outback employees would go out after work and Paul would just show up at whatever bar they went to uninvited. He would try to give these women drinks, but he would never buy them in front of them. He would just walk over with drinks wherever they were. And of course, none of them accepted these drinks because they were so freaked out by Paul. I hate that so many of us can think of a person that we've worked with or had to be around that does things like this next thing. So when he worked at Outback, when there were girls that were rolling silverware, he would come up behind them and rub their shoulders. Other Outback employees said that Paul would also take cucumbers and carve them into the shape of a penis and put ranch on them and like chase them around the restaurant with it. Dude, come on. And this was when he was an adult, okay? A disturbing number of women came forward with stories of accepting drinks from Paul at bars only to get extremely sick and even pass out. There was even a woman who had a consensual sexual encounter with Paul and believed that she was also drugged. This woman met Paul while she was out at a bar and he offered to take her to get something to eat. She was done drinking for the night and was making sure to drink a ton of water so that she could sober up and get home and not be hung over the next day. She very clearly remembers that. Eventually, they ended up at Paul's apartment where he gave her a glass of water. She said that she suddenly got really dizzy and felt like she was going to pass out. She absolutely was not still drunk and believes that Paul drugged her even at this consensual encounter. And the nightmare cherry on the top of this shit Sunday is that in 2020, when police took boxes and boxes of evidence from Paul's home, they found evidence that multiple women had fallen victim to Paul. This is a trigger warning for sexual assault. Please skip forward like 30 seconds um, if you need to. For a time, no one knew what was taken in that search, but there were documents that were unsealed, and it came out that the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's investigators took multiple electronic devices that featured Paul Flores having sex with incapacitated women. Also found multiple videos and photos of incapacitated women wearing ball gags and in fetish positions on a hard drive in a folder labeled practice. Practice? Practice for what, you piece of shit? I'm not even sorry. This is piece of shit behavior. And I will not take that back and I will not apologize. They also found that Paul was in possession of Tremadol and Flexeril, which are both commonly used as date rape drugs. When all of this came out after Paul's arrest, the court filed a motion to add two previous rape charges to Paul's current charges of murder. Paul's lawyers are <laughs> really something else. I understand that everyone needs lawyers and defense lawyers are important, blah, blah, blah. But when this information came out and there were women coming forward telling their stories about Paul attacking them, and there were also women who came forward who said that they thought maybe they had been attacked by Paul and asked police to check to see if they were some of the women on those tapes. They would tell them specific um, tattoos that they had or distinguishing marks on their bodies so that the investigators could check to see if any of the women on those tapes were the ones that came forward. And these are just the ones that came forward. So there are probably dozens of other women who have had run-ins with Paul. So anyways, when this information came out and they tried to charge him with those two rape charges... His lawyer said that he didn't commit any of those crimes, and he never attacked anyone. The piles of disgusting non-consensual videos would say otherwise, but okay. Paul's lawyers called the attempt to add rape charges a quote-unquote publicity stunt. As if anyone in the public needs any help, seeing that Paul is a disgusting dirtbag. Unfortunately, the judge ended up ruling against that motion, and Paul was not formally charged with those added charges. Paul Flores was 44 years old and Ruben Flores was 80 years old when they were arrested. Paul was held without the option of bail at the San Luis Obispo Jail and 
Rubin had bail initially set at $250,000, but after being in jail for about a week, unable to post that bail, the amount was reduced to $50,000 and he was released. The conditions of his release included surrendering his passport and he would have to stay in San Luis Obispo County and wear an ankle monitor. The Smart Family's team obviously didn't think that Rubin should be given bail at all. Prosecutor Christopher Pevrel said, quote, The excavation below his deck showed damning evidence that a body had been buried in that location and recently moved, end quote. Everyone on the prosecution team felt that it was likely he would continue trying to get rid of evidence, and I agree. I remember when this was all unfolding, and the Flores family lawyers were trying to make statements to the media about how ridiculous it was that anyone was trying to drag Ruben into the mix, that he wasn't involved and shouldn't be accused, blah, blah, blah. Prosecutor Christopher Pevrel argued against that, saying, quote, Due to the evidence gleaned from the excavation, it is reasonable to believe Ruben Flores currently knows the location of Kristen Smart's remains. Should he be allowed bail, it is a virtual certainty that he would use his freedom to continue his attempts to help Paul Flores thwart prosecution in this case and continue to hide her remains, end quote. But like I said, they allowed him to post bail and he would wear the ink monitor until trial. As I mentioned earlier, court documents that were supposed to be sealed were released publicly that told about the findings in the 2020 search, including the graphic videos and photos and date rape drugs found in Paul's possession. And his team seriously wants to argue that he is innocent. I just... These unsealed documents also included information pertaining to the ground-penetrating radar and digging that happened under the deck on March 15, 2021. The GPR uncovered a soil disturbance under the deck and, and four soil samples taken tested positive for human blood. Authorities also found tiny fibers consistent with the color of clothing Kristen was last seen wearing. Nikki Rodriguez, a spokeswoman for the court, said the documents were not supposed to be public. The judge in the case issued a gag order preventing lawyers, investigators, witnesses, and others from speaking out about the case or releasing documents. It's, of course, a very long process from arrest to the actual trial. So after a few months, the evidentiary hearing began on August 2nd, 2021. And if I understand correctly, the evidentiary hearing is set up so that both sides can present the evidence they have to prove the accused person of being innocent or being guilty. Then the judge rules whether or not there is enough evidence to move forward with an actual trial. So this is a chance for defense attorneys to come up with as many stupid stories as possible to defend their obviously guilty client, allegedly. There was a lot that happened in this evidentiary hearing, so I will just give you a few highlights. An audio conversation from a phone tap set up by police was played in the courtroom. This conversation was between Paul and Susan on January 26, 2020. In the recording, Susan was heard telling Paul to start listening to the Your Own Backyard podcast so they could start, quote, punching holes in it. I don't know if she mentioned it specifically by name. I think she just said, like, you need to listen to this podcast, but everyone knew what they were talking about. On day two of the evidentiary hearing, one of Kristen's close friends from college, Stephen Fleming, told the court that Paul had interacted with Kristen before the party they both attended the night she disappeared. Stephen said he once saw Paul lurking in the lobby of Kristen's dorm room at 1 a.m., and another time he saw Paul actually in Kristen's room. He said that Kristen seemed really uncomfortable, but was too polite and too nice to ask Paul to leave. Just like everyone else talks about Paul, Stephen also said that Paul was creepy. He said, quote, A lot of women felt uncomfortable around him. He was not welcome, end quote. Paul's defense attorney, Robert Sanger, tried to discount Stephen's story. Other witnesses were questioned, but Stephen's testimony was really, really important because he was the first person to say that he saw Paul and Kristen together before that party. Again, I understand that defense attorneys are important to the justice system. They have a job to do. But I don't know how people come up with this stuff. 
Robert Sanger was doing the absolute most to defend Paul by saying that Paul had been treating unfairly since day one because he was the only person of interest and that the police solely focused on him in the investigation. First of all, he got to creep around committing horrible crimes against women for over two decades before police actually arrested him. And second of all, he was the only suspect and person of interest because all of the evidence and stories were stacking up against him. Sanger said, quote, There is no evidence of a murder and no evidence of a rape. After over 25 years, there is no evidence that Paul Flores committed crimes for which there is no evidence, end quote. Seriously? That's the defense? I don't think the whole there's no evidence thing worked super well. So the defense team tried a different strategy. They wanted to have the San Luis Obispo County DA's office removed from Kristen's case because prosecutor Christopher Purvell and others on the Smarts family team were wearing purple clothing in court. That's right. Purple clothing was going to get the case thrown out. I... <laughs> purple was Kristen's favorite color, and people were wearing purple to band together to show support for Kristen and her family. Sanger said that it was inappropriate for the prosecution team to wear purple in support of their client and called it, quote, a stunning lack of objectivity. The judge ruled that the DA cannot be disqualified for wearing purple clothing. At one point in this hearing, a San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office detective testified that Ruben Flores made an accidental confession when investigators were taking a DNA sample from him. According to this detective, Ruben Flores asked investigators why they were taking DNA samples from his ex-wife Susan and her boyfriend Mike. Detective Clint Cole testified that Ruben Flores said, quote, they didn't commit a felony, I did, end quote. But then he corrected himself and said, quote, I mean, I'm the only person that's been arrested, end quote. The defense team attempted to subpoena Chris Lambert. If he was subpoenaed and questioned on the stand, he would have to turn over all of the evidence and witnesses and notes that he had gathered over the years for Your Own Backyard. Defense attorney Robert Sanger accused Chris Lambert of influencing at least two witnesses who had previously testified in the case. Which, even if that was somehow true and he did somehow influence these two witnesses, what about the dozens of other people with stories about Paul? He couldn't have possibly influenced all of them. The judge took this off the table and did not make Chris testify, and I think this was partially because of something called the Shield Law, which in California protects journalists from being forced to testify about their sources. The DNA evidence was also presented at this time. When they performed the ground-penetrating radar, archaeologists found an anomaly of a 6-by-4-foot space. When they dug down in that spot, 2.5 feet down, there was a stain matching what happens when bodies decompose, and this is called a cadaver soak stain. This can happen when a body is wrapped in a tarp or other material that allows fluid to seep into the soil but keeps bones, hair, and clothing concealed. An archaeologist named Angela Butler testified that five soil samples taken during the March search tested positive for human blood, and another eight samples taken during the April search also tested positive for human blood. She said that there was no DNA detected in these samples because there was either not enough DNA in the soil or if there had been enough, it could have degraded over the decades that it had been there. Butler also explained that these samples were damp and there is also a lot of bacteria in soil which can compromise human DNA detection. Butler said that in one of the samples there were some small clumps of material that were dark orange, brown, and slightly red fibers that she gave to Detective Cole. Once both sides had presented their arguments in a very lengthy hearing, Judge Craig B. Van Royen ruled the trial would move forward with Paul tried for murder and Reuben tried as an accessory. After the evidentiary hearings, they moved into preliminary motions where both sides get to discuss issues that might come up before they start the actual trial. Just like with the evidence hearings, there was a lot brought up, so I will give you highlights of these motions. 
Almost right away, Paul's team filed a 995 motion, which simply put is basically a second opinion. Judge Van Royen ruled that Paul should not be released before the trial and felt there had been enough evidence presented to show the possibility of Paul's guilt and that there was very likely a burial site at the Flores home. A second judge took a look at this case and agreed with the first judge, so everything moved forward. The defense filed for a change of venue because of publicity. Everyone in the area was very aware of what was going on, and they didn't think they could get an unbiased jury, which, fair enough, they were granted a change of venue. During these motions, it was decided that there would be two juries, one for Paul and one for Reuben. This often happens in cases where one person's testimony can implicate the other person. The judge also ruled that this would be a media blackout type of trial. There was no audio or video recordings allowed. Reporters had to do handwritten notes only and could only take still photographs. Again, thank goodness for Chris Lambert because he did a phenomenal job keeping track of the hours and hours of court proceedings. I don't even know how you would begin to do that. Again, it's a Chris Lambert fan podcast. Okay. Also in these motions, the defense wanted a taped interview of Paul to be removed from evidence because Paul's statements in that video would implicate implicate Reuben. Judge Jennifer O'Keefe said it was part of his testimony and would be allowed to be played in court. The defense tried again for dismissal of this case for, quote, outrageous government conduct. This was because Susan Flores was spotted taking photos of a child of one of the witnesses involved in this case. Let me say that again. Susan Flores was spotted taking photos of a child of one of the witnesses involved in this case. Someone saw her doing this and called the police. Good job. Police took this opportunity to seize her phone and analyze it to see if there were photos of this witness's child on it. And defense attorney Sanger said that this phone was taken as a ploy to search for conversations with Paul. This didn't go anywhere and this didn't get the case dismissed because he didn't have the proof needed to show that this was an inappropriate time to take Susan's phone. Then Sanger tried to go through a list of men more likely to have committed Kristen's murder. This list included an ex-boyfriend that they couldn't name or track down, but promised he existed. Another man who was rumored to have gotten Kristen pregnant before she went missing. There was absolutely no evidence of that, and it was ruled as hearsay. And their last suggested suspect was Scott Peterson, because he attended college at Cal Poly the same time Kristen was there. If you are thinking you've heard that name, but you can't quite put your finger on it, or maybe you immediately knew who he was... Scott Peterson is in prison for the rest of his miserable life for the murder of his wife, Lacey Peterson, and their unborn child. These are the people that Paul's team was trying to say were more likely suspects than Paul, and enough of a reason for Paul to be let off the hook. Various detectives would testify in trial about the different suspects that they looked into, but the judge ruled that the convicted murderer, Scott Peterson, would not be allowed to testify because there was no connection between Kristen and Scott, and no evidence that Scott Peterson was anywhere near the same party as Kristen. Unlike Paul, who everyone saw with her and had story after story of seeing them together. Seriously, did this Sanger guy go to the Jose Baez School of Lies to learn how to confidently spout random crap in hopes that it causes reasonable doubt? I just... Jose Baez, yikes of bikes. If you know, you know. And if you don't know, invest in Google at your own risk. The defense tried to get the mugshot of Paul with a black eye thrown out because it was stored in a file held by the prosecution team, and they believed that the negative could have been tampered with. If he was trying to say that Paul didn't have a black eye, that wasn't going to work because multiple people testified that they saw him with a black eye and scratches on his arm. The judge said that this photo would definitely be allowed in the trial. And lastly, Sanger said that in the trial, the prosecution team should not be allowed to refer to Kristen as the victim. Because according to him, that points the finger at Paul as a murderer. Judge O'Keefe said that in the eyes of the court, Kristen was a victim, seeing as she had not disappeared on her own. 
She said that referring to her as the victim does not automatically implicate Paul, and they denied that motion. Seriously, <laughs> how do these defense attorneys sleep at night? Probably quite well on their piles and piles of money. Anyways, moving on. Once motions were filed, there were a couple of setbacks on the trial date, but finally the trial began on July 18th, 2022, and lasted for 10 weeks. We could talk for 10 hours about everything that happened in this trial, but I will try to give you the most important parts to the best of my abilities. Again, all of this info came from the incredible, unbelievable, iconic Chris Lambert from Your Own Backyard. For this next portion, I am going to give you a list-style breakdown about the opening statements made by Sanger to keep them as organized and easy to understand as possible. Sanger defended Paul by saying that just because he had a history of sexual violence didn't fill in the blanks of what happened to Kristen. I disagree. He said that the police had no evidence and no case. Again, I disagree. Then he had the audacity to point the finger at Kristen, saying that she was engaging in behaviors that put her quote-unquote at risk, such as getting in cars with men and telling people she was a model when she wasn't. You're seriously trying to say in a court of law that this behavior is an excuse for someone to murder her because she got in a car with a man? We, women can't get in cars with men, that's us asking to be murdered. Sanger said that because of the Smart family, people have been harassing the Flores family for over two decades unfairly. Sanger said that the ground-penetrating radar experts couldn't be reliable witnesses because they only had their master's degree and not a PhD. He tried to say that Paul never changed his story about how he got a black eye, even though Paul told multiple stories about that. He pointed the finger again at Your Own Backyard podcast for creating more of a narrative that Paul was guilty, as if anyone needed help coming to that conclusion. He said that the witness who called police after she saw Mike and Susan back their cargo trailer up to the house was lying and made it up because she was sick of the traffic from reporters and police in the neighborhood. So she made up a story about them hiding evidence. Paul had multiple lawyers on his team, and when one of them made a statement about this trailer, the other one was out of the room, and they both had different reasons for why the trailer was moved to Ruben's house. One of them said that it was because Mike was terminally ill, so he would move it there because he wasn't going to be using it anymore. But then the other one tried to, like, gain sympathy or something by saying that they had to move it because people were harassing them and vandalizing the trailer because of what the Smart family was saying about Paul. Again, there were many other things in there, but those were the main points of his opening. During witness questioning, Sanger would try to get the witnesses worked up by asking argumentative questions. For example, he would throw out questions about Kristen's weight, why she dyed her hair darker her sophomore year, and accuse her family of not being really as close and as happy as they wanted everyone to believe. All of these questions were objected to and thrown out by the judge because they were idiotic and had nothing to do with anything. It was just an attempt for this lawyer to drag Kristen's name through the mud when she was not there to defend herself and accuse her of things and try to put blame on her for things that had nothing to do with her. During this trial, Cheryl Anderson and Tim Davis, who were the last people to see Kristen with Paul, testified. And if I understand correctly, this was the first time in a long time that they connected themselves to Kristen's case after those initial police interviews. And I am so glad that they were brave enough to come forward and to testify because that would be really hard. Cheryl again told her story the same way that she did all of those years before. Paul was acting like a creep their whole walk to her dorm before she split up with them. Cheryl was asked if Kristen was, quote, hanging on several guys at the party. That question was objected to and thrown out. Sanger also asked what Cheryl was wearing in comparison to Kristen. Again, objection, and again, thrown out, because it's freaking 2022. Are we seriously using, but what was she wearing as an argument in court? 
Sanger asked Cheryl if Kristen was really that unsteady or if she was hanging on Paul unnecessarily. I think he was trying to insinuate that Kristen was either leading him on or being flirty with Paul. I don't know. But Cheryl said that Kristen was very wobbly, and while she could have probably stumbled around on her own, it would have been really difficult. Cheryl testified that she asked Paul if he would get Kristen back to her dorm safely, and Paul said yes. Sanger said that this proved that she felt comfortable leaving Kristen with Paul. Cheryl said, quote, I didn't think anything bad would happen at the time, end quote. Because again, most people aren't horrible human beings, and these 19-year-old girls probably didn't think that they should have had to be terrified of every man at every party that offered to walk them home. I think that stories like this make us all terrified of going anywhere or doing anything or simply existing because then something terrible happens and someone like Sanger says, but what was she wearing? Was she hanging on people unnecessarily? Why didn't she dye her hair dark? I can't. The majority of the court testimonies were information that we have already gone over between parts one and part two. So again, if you want to get that full breakdown, you already know where I'm going to tell you to go listen to those. Your Own Backyard has episodes for each week of the court proceedings, so that's a really good resource if you want to get the full detail. After 26 long years of fighting for justice and 10 very long weeks of trials where they had to relieve each heart-wrenching moment and somehow remain calm while a defense attorney tried to tarnish the reputation of their daughter, the Smarts finally got to see Paul Flores convicted in the murder of Kristen Smart. On October 19th, 2022, Paul Flores was found guilty in the first-degree murder of Kristen Smart. Ruben Flores was found not guilty as an accessory to murder. This was a huge win for the Smart family. However, nothing can go smoothly in this case, so there has been delay after delay in Paul's sentencing. The sentencing hearing was supposed to happen on December 9th, 2022, but before that court date, Judge O'Keefe approved a motion filed by the Flores defense team re requesting that they have more time before sentencing. Court documents state in Flores's Court documents state Flores's counsel is, quote, in the process of preparing a comprehensive motion for a new trial and other post-verdict pre-conviction motions, end quote. The new sentencing date is set for March 10th, 2023, and Sanger said they will seek a new trial during the hearing. Judge O'Keefe is expected to rule on that motion at that time. Paul is facing 25 years to life without possibility of parole. And at the time I'm recording this episode, it is February 8th, 2023, so we are just about a month away from that rescheduled date. There have been huge steps taken in moving this case forward, but there is still more to be done, including locating Kristen's remains. I don't want to end this episode on a down note, so I want to take a moment and talk about some of the beautiful things that the Smart family has done in memory of Kristen. Kristen's younger brother, Matt, was just a kid when she went missing, but he remembers seeing the search and rescue teams out looking for her day after day. Matt described his sister as, quote, "...the sort of individual who sought out adventure." the sort of individual who sought out the best life had to offer, end quote. Matt was recently inspired to join the San Diego County Sheriff's Search and Rescue Team, which he feels will help him, quote, be able to pay it back and pay it forward in a way, end quote. Stan and Denise Smart, Kristen's parents, have set up a scholarship in Kristen's memory. The scholarship is presented yearly to a graduating female student from San Luis Obispo or San Joaquin County, and the kristensmart.org website says, quote, Kristen Smart graduated from Lincoln High School in Stockton, California in 1995. She was a college freshman at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo from 1995 to 1996. She was a young woman who embraced life, sought new adventures, and looked forward to exploring the world's nature and architecture. Unfortunately, her dreams were lost when she was abducted in 1996 and has been missing since. Her family hopes the scholarship aids in the passing of her aspirations onto other young women. 
The female recipient of the scholarship should share Kristen's passions for nature and travel. We invite high school seniors we invite high school senior applicants who are pursuing education in architecture, international studies, law enforcement, or criminal justice in an effort to build safer communities to apply today and share your story, end quote. The Smart family also set up a beautiful memorial called Kristen's Point of Hope at Dinosaur Cave Park in Pismo Beach, California. There is a stone pillar and a bench with an engraving that is surrounded by beautiful purple flowers in her memory, and it is a gorgeous lookout point over the San Luis Obispo Bay. You can see photos and a 360 image of Kristen's Point of Hope on kristensmart.org. The Kristen Smart Scholarship is 100% made up of public and private donations, and there is an option to donate to the scholarship on Kristen's website as well um, if you would like to donate or share about that donation page. I truly hope there is good news and an end to some of the madness for the Smart family after that March 10th hearing. Um, keep an eye out for information on that. I will be anxiously waiting for that verdict as well, um, and I'll maybe do an update episode once we have more information. Thank you for being here. Please make sure that you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your audio podcasts. I will talk to you soon. Bye.